0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Church. We're glad you're here. Um, there, uh, Don and Jen are doing a prayer walking time. We did it before church today. We're going to do it about 9.15 maybe next time. Um, so there's a neat uh, sheet that um, Don gave me about prayer walking. There's more on the connection desk. Is that right? So you're welcome to uh, go over and check that out. Just want to encourage you to do that. Um, come before church. And I know we have a lot going on before church I drove up at 9-something, and the parking lot was almost full, which is pretty cool to see. Uh, lots of you doing the classes before, and jam's going really well, the youth group's going really well, and prayer walking, something we want to add to it. So um, we are going to start now uh, in potentially the last teaching in Ezra. So I want to um, use the opportunity well to teach, um, on bigger picture stuff. So we are going to go through this chapter. If you want to turn to Ezra, it's going to just be a little bit before we get there, but it's a end of eight and then nine and 10 is where we'll be, um, for most of the sermon time. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a rich treasure. We could live thousands of years on this earth and still never dig all the way into it. Um, I pray today that you would be with us as a body, that we would grow in our understanding and appreciation for your word, and that we would seek you out, um, seek you out during the week, uh, spend time studying your word, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate, that you would open up our eyes to see the truth. I'll touch on part of it, but there's so much more, and I pray for each individual in this room that he or she would really dig deep and, and recognize the gift that the word is, and that you would teach them something meaningful to take away from this. In Jesus' name, amen. So last uh, last two times, I put up a slide from 2 Timothy, and I'll just read it this time, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, and from that, um, I'll point you over to our doc again, so we can think about that. And the first pillar post on the right is the Word of God, okay? So, we are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and they have 10 doctrinal statements, and one of them has to do with what they call the Bible. So, This is what it says. It says, We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the virtually inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trust in all that it promises. So that's the pillar post. That's a longer version of it. Ezra is an awesome, 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 awesome chance to talk about some of the things that may, you, people may use to challenge the inerrancy of Scripture. So um, younger kids, I'm mainly talking to you guys, youth group age, um, and maybe even down to middle school, not quite jam. The rest of you can kind of listen in uh, as, as I do this, but... One of the challenges that you have if you leave here um, and go out, as I did, to a school that didn't necessarily believe this, is you'll hear different ways in which the inerrancy of the Scripture is challenged. And one of them has to do with timelines, okay? So what will happen is the same thing happened to me yesterday, um, I've been teaching Ezra. We do a style of teaching where we teach through the scripture. So there's, uh, it's called expository teaching. And so what that means, and it's not wrong to do thematic teaching, which is another way to do it. We occasionally will do that. I'll jump to some Easter themes right before Easter. We went to some Christmas themes right before Christmas, so there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with teaching on parenthood on Mother's Day or anything like that. I'm just saying, in general, we're trying to do expository teaching, which means we're picking the teaching team. So Don... Don and Jim and I uh, had a meeting last week, the uh, week before, talking about where we're planning to go. So we we think and pray, and then we talk about where we're going to go. It's this teaching team that started a couple years ago, and it was Mark and Jim and Don and I. And the idea is how we, how we go through the scriptures, but they're not... Um, so we picked the post-exilic prophets, and Don and Jim are doing that, and then I'm doing the historical books. So I'm coming to the passage every week, without an agenda that I know of. I'm just trying to read through, find out what it teaches, and then present it to you Sunday morning. I haven't taught it before, Ezra. So, Saturdays are when I do the message, and they tend to get a little stressful, because I'm not sure what I'm going to say yet until I study. And yesterday afternoon, I was deep in the weeds on the dates, you know, and I kept trying to get this straight and this timeline, and My head started to spin at about three something, and I still didn't have an outline together. I thought, it's time to back out and come up with something to teach. But it made me think of something. Um, one of the challenges is when, particularly a book like Ezra that has other cross-references, so kids, when you read books that talk about some same timelines, you start to line up names and they come up with dates as to when things happen and different theories of, uh, well, this must be when it started because of this, this, and this. And it reminds me of the Rubik's Cube because you get it straight on three or four colors and then you turn it over and then there's a guy mentioned in this passage who would be 140, if this were true, if this theory, and you go back to the beginning. So um, I want to distinguish a couple things. One, timelines are human inventions, and they're based on our uh, assumptions of what's going on often in history. So I thought of this this morning. Guys, anyone teaching, I don't recommend what I'm about to do, which is mean try something out before you even tell your wife. Just say it. So here it is. Here's a story that I can come up with. So let's say a thousand, two thousand years from now, people are trying to determine when a certain event happened back around our era, give or take a hundred or two hundred years. So they have the event and connected with the event is this phrase. There was a man in central Virginia sitting in his living room and he said to his kids, well, that's the last time we'll see Mr. Brady. So historians go, well, that's a fixed date, because we all know that he's talking about it's got to be end of 2022. Some of you sports fans will know why, right? That's a fixed date. That guy is talking about Tom Brady retiring. So that makes everything that happens in this scene about 2022, because that's a non-negotiable. That is a truth, and so fifty years of research go on, and that's established. And you see people quoting that in their uh, books. And you know how when you read a book, and there's an introduction, and it's mostly written to other people that argue this thing, and then you skip over that. They'll always will go to that. That scene that's a given that this guy in Central Virginia said that to his kids. So then um, someone comes along 20 years later, 30 years later, and this is complex, kid. It's a long story, but you got to be able to think this way or you're never going to deal with the inerrancy thing. So comes back 40 years later and debunks that theory and says Central Virginia, they weren't really that into pro football then. I mean, they should have been Washington fans, but Washington couldn't get their name straight, and they just got fed up, and they just went college football. Central Virginia, Virginia Tech, UVA, they didn't even care about pro football. Your whole theory is off, man. They didn't do that. Well, so then that gets debunked, and then someone comes along 30 years later, and they're doing their graduate research on the migration of New Englanders and they find out that New Englanders went down to central Virginia, and they are generally Patriots fans, and they found out that a man named Mr. Gefkin did live there. And so he was a patron. That explains why there's patriots. And someone else debunks that. Like, well, you don't, why wouldn't they, you don't have any other evidence? Well, then 30 years goes by. And then someone comes across the membership role for Grace Church, this church that meets in Mount Ellison. They come across some emails from people that re-up their membership with Kenny Longo through the email or people that picked up forms at the welcome desk if they're new to re-up. And a lot of them were born in New England. So how many people from New England in this room right now? Is it a safe statement to say most people from New England are Patriots fans? Yes. yes, yes, they say. So that's great. We go with that. So then that's solid. They're going for another 15, 20 years. Someone goes up in the Luray Cavins and digs up this old papri, you know, papri the paper. And they say, they call it um, Codic, Codis Lurayus B. And it says that this guy says... This is the last time we'll see Mr. Brady, and the family begins to sing a song. There's a story about a man named Brady, but then the paper disappears, right? It gets fuzzy, and they go on, and then there's more evidence, more back and forth at the beginning of all the books where they argue with each other, they're educated people, and, and they say, look, now there's even this song that they sang in addition to what we have, and so, and besides, I have researched the, um, the payroll records of this one place in Maine called the Bath Iron Works, and we have discovered that Dan Gefkin's father worked for Bath Iron Works, as well as Lucas Hayden's father worked for Bath Iron Works. They both attended Grace Church. This is a done deal. So for the next 40 years, everybody starts the payroll reports from Bath Ironworks. This is solid. This is 2022. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Forty years later, they find something else, another paper um, somewhere else in Virginia, and it has the rest of the song that the kids sang in the living room and completely debunks the whole theory. Raise your hand if you know the song that I'm talking about. There's a story of a man named Brady. He was raising three boys of his own. There were four of them, and they were all together. But they were all alone. Then the one day when, and what is it? Is he talking about Tom Brady? Is it 2022? When is it? It's the Brady Bunch, decades earlier. Okay, so I tell you all of that. Just so that kids, when someone lays these theories down before you, don't freak. Don't freak. Just think. We got to know how to think, not just what to think. And Ezra was my best chance to give you that tool as you move forward because the biggest pillar post on the right is the Word of God, and we got to know how to think about it going forward as adults. What would you think of that story? All right. Um, First time I've heard it as well. Just making it up as I started. All right. So now we're going to go into Ezra. Um, So you guys remember Ezra is leaving. They're leaving uh, Babylon. He's got them camped out. And and they go now. Uh, this this is what happens afterwards. They depart uh, from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was upon us. Remember, that's one of Ezra's phrases. I really like that. Um, the hand of God delivered us delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and uh, and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and stayed there for three days. I wish he'd said more. You know, this is a couple-month journey, 900 miles over the desert. I mean, there had to have been something interesting. But I'm, uh, the more I read Ezra, I, I think he's just a facts guy. I mean, he just tells what he's thinking and tells about the facts. Um, so, on the fourth day was the silver and gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, son of Phineas. And with them was Josabad the son of Jeshua and Noadiah the son of Benui, Levites. And by number and by weight, and of everyone, and all the weights were or weight was written at that time. So he is just saying the basics here, uh, threw a few too many names in there for my um, benefit, but he's telling us what happens now. He's in the house of God. Another writer would say, it was awesome. I've been waiting my whole life to get there. I was in the house of God. It was so great. But he's just telling us the facts. He delivered things and and everything was in order. Can you imagine if Ezra got a look at a decent Excel spreadsheet. I mean, he would have been so excited. I mean, this. there is beauty in art, and there is beauty in order. Ezra would have loved order. I remember a job I had when Kirsten and I were dating. Uh, a company asked me to come in and do budgets for nine nursing homes that f- fed into one parent company. And I had this Excel spreadsheet, all these if-then scenarios all the way down uh, on the wall. It was a thing of beauty, the way everything fed into everything came out just so, Ezra would have appreciated it. So he is a man of order and a man of just the facts. I mean, I imagine him saying, yes, everything proceeded according to plan, and we were quite pleased with the outcome. Okay, that was it. Um, So... And the children, um, and so the children that had been there, these people that were there, also the children of those who had been carried away, which were come out of captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel. So the idea with the burnt offering is the whole thing is consumed. So there's no waiting around for um, food afterwards. So we may not be thinking about it as much, but... That wasn't always the case, you know, so if, if, if you were offering something, maybe there'd be food left over or something. There's nothing with the burnt offering. It's a complete giving everything to God, and so it lists through some of the things they, they did. Now, imagine what that must have been like for those who had been longing to worship in Jerusalem. The people that came with Ezra, there is, unless someone traveled and came back, which if you think about it, that could have happened, I mean, four months there, four months back, but likely, Everybody with Ezra, a couple thousand that came with him, this is their first chance to really worship in Jerusalem. So they've seen the temple. Um, they, are, they are now worshiping the Jerusalem. There must have been tremendous joy in their hearts as they were just doing, they were doing what they were made to do. They had gone through all this effort to be there. If you've ever traveled a long way to get somewhere and then you get to do the thing that you envisioned actually doing when you got there— it's like that. And and they had a, just try to put yourself in their spot. That's a long walk. And this was the main thing that they would have been thinking about, how to do proper worship, worship in Jerusalem. And they got to do it. And then Ezra talks about um, delivering the king's commissions. Remember, he's an agent of the government, and he's demonstrating that he is doing the job that he was appointed to do. So this is a time when the government is working with the kingdom in a very specific way they have uh, authorized the trip they've even authorized money to do it and um, the governors on this side of the river and they furthered the people in the house of God. So you have a very positive time of the local government. You remember at different times in this process, the local leaders opposed them. This time they're working with them. So there's, things just have to feel right, you know? Where we did it, we delivered everything. Imagine the satisfaction of any of you, I know all of us have had different long projects, either a semester that you finished or a project at work. There is a joy in doing your job and a satisfaction that no one can ever take away from you. And these people did this. Remember the Levites that were somewhat hesitant to go? Remember they weren't at the original camp out? They came, they transported the money. Maybe they weren't as into it when they started, but they probably were more into it when they got there. When they saw what it meant, they were probably so glad that they left and obeyed. This was a tremendously satisfying moment for the group and a high mark for the people of Israel because everything is lined up. They've seen the hand of God. They've seen him turn the heart. Remember that phrase, turn the heart of the officials? And now things are really, really going well. So um, at this point, then we're going to turn into a next uh, time of problem. So this is the challenge. The challenge is going to come in as we turn the page to chapter uh, 10, or nine, and then, uh, so I want to tell you a little story first to get us ready. Kirsten and I met in Chicago um, at Bub City Country Bar and Grill. That's where we met. I think it was the first and last time I ever two-step danced, and I, I never quite got the beat of that, but there, we were at this place. We met in Chicago, and then um, we, uh, you know, we we dated for a while, and then we got married, and and then the first year we were married, my friend, who is my best man, is from Ireland. And then he was getting married, so we went to Ireland for his wedding. And while we were there, we, we visited several famous uh, Irish Christian discipleship places that, that were done in the five, six, seven, eight hundreds. And 7, st- I didn't ask you if I could share this. Um, so... Um, so we're walking around, you'd see these thriving places or ruins of places, and they always went like this, you know, this, is a, this was a thriving place, you know, two 3,000 disciples lived here, you know, started in 560 until 837 when the Vikings came up and destroyed everything. And then we get to the next place, and it'd be, this is a beautiful thing, and it was a thriving village, you know, of Christians that were taught this and copied the Bible. Until 864 when the Vikings showed up and destroyed everything. And I started realizing that I had married a Viking. Because she's Norwegian, you know? And I hadn't thought of it in Chicago. But we, we my family, I'm 100% Irish. So, you know, everyone for hundreds and hundreds of years has married 100% Irish. I'm the oldest son. I married somebody from a different nation. And it really hit me as I stood there on my native land that I had done that. So, <clears throat> as I read this next passage, I have to put my head on, my hat on, and think, how am I going to think, because if I read too far ahead, we're going to need to separate, and you kids are paying for college on your own, wherever you're going, because I'm, if I apply the principles incorrectly of what we're about to read, we're going to have a difficult conversation over lunch, and then things are going to change in my house, because It says to put away wives of other nations. So you're going to have to learn how to think about this as we proceed. So perspective is always a good thing before you jump into difficult topics. So what I thought we would do is... um, Where could we go for this? All right. We'll just go into this passage. We'll just go ahead and do this. All right. So I thought, well, let's. where else did this show up in the Bible? This was... um, so this is Numbers 12, loose math, 1,000 years before what we're about to jump into, into Ezra. It's not the first time this showed up. So there was a problem. Um, Miriam and Aaron, they're uh, older siblings of Moses. They spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman that he had married for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only to Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of a cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Kids, this is the ultimate call to the principal's office. It's been long enough for you grown-ups. Kids, you don't have to answer this. How many grown-ups have been called to the principal's office that are willing to confess it? Kids, uh, hands held high. Kids, turn around and look. Uh, You need to know this about your people you're worshiping with. Um, That I... I remember that terrifying walk down the hallway. Remember the the little speakers that were in the public school rooms? And it was just, it would come over and Brian Donahue come to the principal's office. And you're walking down the hallway like, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? It was scary. So this is that times... A 1,000, because God is calling them. And so what were they mad about? They had a problem. There's two issues here. Um, One, they're having some leadership struggles, but what they decided to focus on the fact is that Moses married this Ethiopian woman, and so that's what they key in on. And and God steps right into this, which uh, I'm thankful he never stepped into my arguments with my siblings. Imagine how that would have been, you know, as you argued with your kids, and suddenly God shows up and calls you into the living room. So uh, this is God. He says, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. So uh, a couple things in this. One, um, if there is a prophet among you, it supposes that there are prophets. Um, and then the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. So that, he's telling us, that's basically how I talk to prophets, which is really basically how I talk to most people, through the prophets. And then, um, and then not so with Moses, my servant. He is faithful in my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him, and he departed. You can find out what happened to Miriam afterwards. We won't go that far, but um, a couple things in it. When you think of God... uh, God's talking to Moses face to face, and he says, I basically don't do that with the the prophets. He doesn't say I'll never do that with anyone else. I can only tell you he's never done that with me. God has never spoken to me face to face. Now, if I were a kid, and kids, you don't do this anymore, but when things didn't look equal, I would scream to my parents, that's not what Fair Kids today don't do that because they're smarter and they know their parents love them and would never bring up that argument. But when I was a kid, we weren't that smart. So we would scream, that's not fair. It could be a lot of things, the number of French fries from McDonald's, the whole thing. But I would scream, that's not fair. I could sit here and say, God, that's not fair. My life would be so much easier if you would just talk to me. Well, I don't get to dictate the relationship with God. So one of the pillar posts is God the Father. How does he interact? He chooses to interact how he wants to interact. i got to get that straight. So it's not, I'm not the boss of that. Jesus, when he had disciples, you remember he takes three of them up um, you, to, to do different things, like go up on the mountain? It seems like the same three get to do stuff that the other ones don't get to do. They could have been down there going, that's not fair, God is not as concerned about fair; He's concerned about justice, but not concerned about fair as I mean it, as I am. So one of the things when we approach God, we've got to realize he's got his way of doing things, and we may or may not agree with it. There's only one option. We either alter our plans or that's it. He doesn't change. So you're going to have to figure out as you deal with things, when you look at Scripture, and you want to scream, that's not fair. What are you going to do with it? Because after you get done screaming, you're going to have to figure out how you're going to live. And so different passages, like I said, will, will cause that. And this one may do that, um, this one that we're about to go into. So um, this is what happens. Well, we'll just read it. When, uh, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers is foremost in this. So uh, this was the problem. Um, Ezra shows up. He's new. He's not been here long. He's got a mandate from the king that he's supposed to teach God's law and help people live according to it. And he probably knew some about this. I can't imagine. You know, it seems like maybe he'd been there for a couple months at this point. He had to know. He's a smart guy. He can see around him. But uh, the leaders come up anyway and confess this thing. And so this is the problem. Now, to us, we may not get it as much from our perspective, but... um, This is something that you're just going to have to work through yourself. When it pertains to some of the things to do with the people of Israel, we may want to scream, that's not fair. That's just the way it is. So we're going to have to work through it. So he responds. He says, "Um, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment. Plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, which since I'm grown out in my beard, I started thinking, about, like, that would hurt. But that's what he did. Um, sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until evening sacrifice. So um, one thing you see is, well, we do it. Uh, our father is a little bit this, where we're praying, forgive us our sins um, there's a collective nature of, of admitting sin. Ezra didn't do this. He, he, is, he is upset about something he didn't do. But there's a sadness and repentance in him because of what's being done for his people. And so we'll have to, in an individualistic society that we have, we might have a harder time connecting with this collective sense of, of responsibility for um, sin like this. But he sits down, and people gathered, and there's this phrase, everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. So, I mean, I, I i trying to think if I, if I was a kid, if I was ever so scared I was shaking. But um, some of you guys may have memories of being so scared that you're shaking. That's what's going on. I mean, they are trembling. Um, they are realizing the gravity of what they did. They are realizing that the reason why everyone got kicked out 100-plus years ago was because of this these kind of problems, and here they were doing it again. So Deuteronomy talks about it. They're They're... They are strictly forbidden from this kind of uh, intermarrying uh, to this particular group of people for God's reasons that they would, they would be pulled away. Um, and so <clears throat> here's what's going on. And now uh, a guy stands up to talk to him. Well, this is his prayer, anyway, uh, which is a neat perspective. So he's, he's in the middle of this. He's recognizing the gravity of the situation that they just got back in. I mean, they just got back in. He just got in the temple, and he may have only gone a couple times, and now people are doing the kind of thing that got us kicked out in the first place. So he's, he's in that. He's praying, um, and this is what he says, uh, and now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of God, rebuild the ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So he's trying to step out of the situation, and there's a couple really nice words um, For a little while, grace has been shown to us, God's grace. They didn't get what they deserved. They should not, given the years and years and generations and generations of things they did leading up to getting kicked out of Jerusalem to begin with and Israel, they should not have had a right to do it again. And I don't know if you, uh, any of you older people, remember uh, doing something so bad that you felt kind of guilty sitting at the table for a little while. Um, I'm trying to think of some things I did, you know, that would have fallen in that where my parents would point it out and the weight of it would hit me. I mean, I wouldn't even argue. I was just like, I did that. I can't believe I did that. And then sitting at the table, almost like I don't have a right to be here you know, because of what I did. So that's the sense, you know, that there's grace that you, yes, you're you're back. And then there's a picture of a remnant to escape. I mean, they were held down. I mean, they were taken. This was brutal. Some of them were led from Jerusalem with the hooks in their noses. I mean, it was rough. And so they're back. Now they can walk around. They've got a report to the king, but the king's given them money. I mean, it's a way different situation than when they left and given us a peg in his holy place. So I tried to research that. The best I could come up with is like a tent analogy. And um, a peg might have been a place where you can hang your stuff. If you guys have gone camping and you know when it's wet, like it was a couple days ago, hanging everything, your own place to hang your stuff, that's kind of the picture. But it is, you have a place, you're welcome there. So a peg in his holy place that our God might enlighten our eyes, or some passages say, brighten our eyes. Think of. the joy that God can give us, and I know many of you have experienced this. The circumstances aren't that great, whatever you're in, but God enlightens your eyes so that you can see the bigger picture. That is a gift that God gives us sometimes, to just open our eyes to see what really is true. And give us a measure of revival in our bondage. We need that revival now. We're going to pray this at the end, use this as a prayer. But, you know, this is what he had given these people. And he had done it in front of the kings of Persia. The world had seen it. And so, but he gets back to the reality now. He says, but now, God, what shall we do after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you said. And then he goes through quoting the Old Testament um, that would, not he would have called the Old Testament, he would have called the law, but He was a scribe, so he knew the gravity of what was going on. It's possible that half the crowd didn't know what he knew about the direct contradiction to the way God wanted things to be that they were doing, but he did. And so this is what he's referring to. They were told not to intermarry with this group of people for the main reason that they would be led away to worship other gods. And it happened throughout the centuries before. It happened time after time. Even the smartest guy in the world, world Solomon got tripped up over this and he knew it Ezra knew it so if a guy that smart got tripped up we are in trouble if we're repeating it and going down the same road so the reason for the not wanting the intermarriage was because of what would happen generation after generation so uh, many of you are immigrants um, or immigrant families from different countries so my family my great-grandfather came from Ireland they spoke Gaelic as best I can tell. I know a couple words, but in four generations, I can't speak it. I can say a few. So think what would happen now if... um you know, Kirsten doesn't speak Norwegian, but your mom does a little bit because um, there's a little bit of that. But give that another hundred years of us, you know, marrying different backgrounds and all, we may lose a lot of distinction. That in a very basic way, far more serious, but basic way is what will happen if the nation of Israel doesn't stay true to this not intermarrying thing. So um, it's, a, it's a different command. Uh, we've got to ask the question, is that, was it right? okay for me to marry a Norwegian, you know? Um, we've got to wrestle with that, and when you come up with your doctrine, and for kids, you're going to have to think about this. That peer that you build, what you think about God, and those 10 things, that's the basis for your life. That's the truth of life you're going to live, and when you hit something like this, you got to decide, how do I apply scripture to my life? So, the nation of Israel was unique. I'm okay with that, I'm okay with Jesus having three people that he took up on the hill and did some special things with those three guys and the other disciples didn't get invited in. I'm okay with a God that treats Moses different than me. I'm okay with a God who has certain specific instructions for some people that may not apply to others in this case, and in this case, the nation of Israel. He was doing something unique there that I don't know that he was doing with my ancestors, but I've got to celebrate the scriptures and celebrate the fact that we have a God who's not just a clockmaker. He actually intercedes and he has a plan for people and the redemption of people all the way to Jesus Christ and all the way to you and me, but it's his plan and it may not be the one I would come up with. So this is what he said not to do. They went ahead and did it. So one of the things you've got to think about is how are we going to respond when we find sin in our life? How are we going to respond when God shows us something that's wrong? And so this is what they did. Um, They gathered and uh, people came. He was confessing, bowing down. A large assembly of men and women show up. And then another wise person shows up and says, we've trespassed against our God. We've taken the pagan wives, and there yet, the last line is important, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master, and of those who tremble, there's that phrase again, at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to your law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We are also with you. Be of good courage and do it. So Ezra... This was helpful to Ezra because, you remember, he even struggled back when he wasn't sure whether to ask for the escort or not. To have people of wisdom who speak up and recognize the big perspective of the truth and then to encourage the leader to keep moving is really good. Be of good courage and do it. And so um, the, all the men of Judah and Benjamin gather. It's the ninth month. It says they sat in the open square of the house of God and trembled because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So kids, imagine if you're like, we're out, we're going. We're standing out there, and you're standing in the rain, and someone's saying, hey, Dad, what are we doing this for? We got to stay. We got to stay. But the rain's coming down. And Ezra points out that they've tr- they's trespassed, and so this is how it ends. Um, they make confession, And the assembly answers and said, yes, as you have said, we must do. At the end of the day, the question is, are we going to do what God calls us to do? And are we going to see sin as when God says it's a sin, do we really believe it's a sin? Do we believe it's wrong? So if you're in a spot where you have done that and you feel stuck, um, This passage is one of the first ones that I remember memorizing. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the he is Jesus. He is faithful. He's the one that can do it. He can forgive our sins and do something that really, I don't know if you have felt this. I have felt, I believe God's forgiven me for something, but I've still felt kind of dirty because of it. And I can carry that for years like years and years and years. But that second phrase became more important to me the more mature I got in Christ, that I needed to claim that, really believe that, that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's only something he can do. It's not something I can do. So I'm going to end with that. I'll put this prayer up. Lucas, you can come up. Um, I'm going to pray for us kind of off of this, and Lucas can come up, and right before you play, Lucas, I'll do an announcement or two. lord you have shown us grace collectively and individually and we're grateful for it and you have given us uh, a place in your kingdom we're grateful to have even just one seat in your assembly lord and you've given us a place we pray that you'd enlighten our eyes that you would open our eyes to see what's true and what's real and what we need to focus on lord Enlighten our eyes to see the things we should see and keep us from dwelling on the things we shouldn't and give us a measure of revival. We cannot give it to ourselves, Lord. Only you can rouse us in that way, and I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.